Michael Oshlink here. I'm with uh, Chris and Holly Santillo. They are the authors of the new book, Resilience Parenting, Raising Resilient Children in an Era of Detachment and Dependence. How you guys doing? We're doing great, great, Michael. Happy to be here. Thank it's you. Uh, great to have you guys here in this conversation. A really, really important one, especially at the, in the light of our culture and what <clears throat> our children are now going through, the lack of ability to really resiliently deal with life's uh, challenges. But before we get into your book, which is amazing, and I'm going to really encourage all parents and coaches, uh, anyone who has contact with children, to, to, to read it. But before we get into your book, I want to hear a little bit about you guys, uh, you know, a little bit of your background, and what led you to write this book. Okay. Well, I'm going first. way back. Sure. Thank you. <clears throat> uh, I'm Holly, everyone, and uh, I, I studied anthropology in school, and really quickly put that degree to work, uh, pursuing a performance career. <laughs> well, then, then met my husband shortly after that and uh, decided to put that career to rest as well and, and ended up being where I really belong, which is a teacher. And I've been that, that role in, in many different ways, including martial arts and language, and uh, most recently as a music teacher. So that is my love. Nice. Well, I'm much simpler. I've been a martial arts instructor. Um, uh, since I was uh, in my late teens, and uh, it's all I've kind of ever done of any substance. It's certainly any, the only thing I've ever done well, um, and that kind of informed where we were coming from. Uh, and then, of course, uh, 10 years ago now, uh, Holly and I became parents, and we have three uh, young boys. Um, and so what's been really fun for uh, for us as parents is taking all of the things that we had kind of learned uh, theoretically um, in the in the studio, uh, working with children and figuring out how to adapt that and apply that uh, to work with uh, work with children in, in the home, which of course is a much more fertile environment to work with people. You have a, a lot more uh, FaceTime, a lot more interaction, a lot more uh, more ability to uh, to work and develop a child. Well, one of the things among many that I really appreciate about your book is you actually bring your personal stories into the book. You talk about your own kids and some of the challenges you face in raising them, the way you, you talk about it in the book. And then you also bring in stories from some of your martial arts students as well, which is a great way to highlight some of the challenges that parents and our larger cultural face. But before we kind of get into <clears throat> how, you, how you create resilient kids, let's talk about the challenges that lead us to the need to create resilient kids. And the title of your book, you talk about an era of detachment and dependence. What are you guys seeing that you want to quote unquote fix? Well, we resisted the urge when writing the book to uh, to demonize our culture too much. We just kind of um, <clears throat> expect that uh, that our readers probably see as we do uh, that children um, in the last 10, 20, 30 years uh, increasingly seemed to be unable to um, or are less common at any it is less common at any rate for children um, these days to go off into the world uh, and live productive or constructive lives and uh, then it feels like it it used to be and uh, so we don't as I say in the book go into that in any uh, great detail but take it kind of as a baseline is that there was definitely in previous generations a greater sense of resilience you know which we define as being strong and adaptable and able to recover uh, from setbacks um, a greater sense of that in previous generations that is seems to have been lost and obviously if children aren't able to do X Y and Z it isn't the children's fault it's the parents fault and uh, and, and we as parents uh, sending our children to the world unprepared uh, whether you want to call it uh, you know call them snowflakes or, or um, 
uh, helicopter parents or a snowplow parenting. Oh. This is the newest oh, snowplow yeah, parenting. Snowplow yeah. parents uh, okay. uh, push everything out of the way for their parents oh. to make way uh, for their children, rather, okay. uh, including bribing admissions officials at colleges is the latest and greatest okay. scandal, um, and sending kids. Off, unprepared to deal with challenges themselves, and uh, and that's one of the, the the keys, right? Is that every time that we solve a problem for a child, we take from that child an opportunity for them to learn how to uh, encounter that problem and overcome it themselves. And obviously, um, children start off very young and inexperienced, and there are obviously challenges that they can't navigate themselves. And there is a role for parents to do things. Um, but then there needs to be this slow pulling back process that happens over the first 18 years of their lives where we give them an opportunity to kind of grow into space and eventually at that at that moment when they are as we like to call them adults uh go off into the world and uh and interact with it themselves so a question for you holly because i you know your your chris your experiences as a martial art instructor for a long period of time so you had a lot of interactions with parents and children as did holly you're also are a parent yourself, but one thing I think would be interesting for you to talk about, Holly, is that you bring in anthropology as a, a field of study. How did that influence what you wrote in your book? Well, certainly as we talk and, and postulate about how our current cultural world is, <coughs> is shaping our way of parenting, you know, it, it helps to be looking at other cultural models and uh, be aware that this does not have to be the way that we live. It's so easy to come to, um, a sense of, I think you used a term, Michael, I really appreciate it, a sense of normalcy with, with our environment and, and not be cognizant of the possibility of, of otherness in, and in a way that would be beneficial to us. So I, we did not do any particular studies you know, or, or reading in order to, to create this book. It's all based on our personal experiences, but certainly having the mindset of, of openness to other possibilities does, does influence it. I think the term you might be thinking about that I use is boo. Back, That's it. It was so good. Yeah, the boo. Background of obviousness. <laughs> That's just the way it. things are, which is, uh, you know, which a lot of people hold that as their perspective. Like, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way we'll continue to do it. Not true. That's if they hold it that. That's true for them. But I love the fact that you're kind of challenging our cultural boo. Um, and you do so through three pillars. And I'd like for you guys to kind of break down the pillars. One is learning, one is service, and one is integrity. Maybe we can start with learning. Why is that such an important pillar for you guys that you want to impart that on parents? Uh, sure, I love learning. Um, it's, <laughs> there's a lot that can be said on it. You know, there's an old story which uh, has been told a thousand times of the um, college professor uh, with, who's studying um, ancient religions, chatting with the monk. And they sit down to tea, and uh, ostensibly the college professor is supposed to be asking questions of the monk and seeing what he can learn. Uh, but instead he sits down and he just rattles off all the things that he already does know. And, uh, and it's more about him uh, expounding on his expertness rather than, than seeking new information. And so the monk uh, offers him some more tea and he pours and he pours and he pours until the tea is overflowing and onto the table and onto the floor. And, and, um, and the professor's aghast and he says, what are you doing? This, you know, the tea's spilling and it's of no use to anyone. He said, you were like this. The monk says, you were like this, this cup. It is so full. You were so full of your own knowledge that you don't have space for anything else. And until you're willing to let go of what you know, um, you, you have no room to, uh, to learn anything new. And so thus, thus the expression to empty your cup. And, uh, and we talk about this, of course, not only in parenting, but in martial arts, this idea comes up a lot is that people, uh, we as adults, um, and it's 
a nasty habit as we get older and more experienced and more expert in one field, we tend to want to shy away from other areas where we are not an expert. And, um, and so we, re we don't create the opportunities for ourselves to learn. And it's very important for us to model for our children and teach them an appreciation for learning, not just while they're children. Uh, and I, uh, we want to make that, we try to make very hard to make this point in the book that our, the idea of learning as a pillar is not that we should spend 18 years cramming as much information into their heads as possible, though obviously there's a lot that they, they need to learn and should learn during the first 18 years of their lives, but rather that we want to send them off into a world with an appreciation for learning, the importance of learning, and uh, as well as the tools necessary to do so. Um, we make the quip in the book that many of the challenges that our children, because the world is changing so fast, many of the challenges that our children will encounter in their lives haven't even been invented yet. And so there's no, no quantity of education we can provide in the short term will prepare them for all of the uh, obstacles that they'll encounter, but we can prepare them with the tools for how to learn and acquire new skills, new resources, and send them off to the world with those uh, those abilities, those skills, so that when they do encounter something that they're not prepared for, that they can they, they have the confidence in themselves that they know I know how I don't know the solution to this problem, but I know how to find it, and I know I'm going to talk to people, or I'm going to look it up, or I'm going to figure out what I'm going to introspect, I'm going to experiment, I'm going to try, I'm going to fail sometimes, and then I'm going to get up and I'm going to go go again. And, um, and if we look at our own lives, um, the most interesting challenges that we've ever overcome have been a process of that. If it's, when I say, I've given it away by saying the most interesting challenges we've ever come because the, the, uh, the boring ones are the ones we know the answer to. The interesting challenges, the ones that we've had to take a couple of runs at, the ones that we've had to uh, experiment or, or look outside of ourselves, think outside of the box a little bit. And we need to prepare our children for that and throw it through it. It's this process of teaching them the value of learning, teach them how to learn, and sending them off into the world with uh, both armed and appreciative of uh, the value that learning has in their lives. I'd like to bring it back to our uh, theme of resilience and, and the three keywords that we've used throughout the book to help us explore resilience, and, and that's strength, adaptability, and recovery. Learning gives strength. It, it just does. You know, I have, uh, I have derived so much joy from teaching children how to read. That is just one thing that is precious, and it's because they suddenly light up. When they, when they take a book for the first time of their own accord to read it, and they just devour it, you know, you can see that they are empowered. Like it's just, it's thrilling for them and it's thrilling for us, of course, as the teachers who help them get there. Um, learning does provide that, that strength and across the board, right? So just that having those skills, like, like Chris said, having the knowledge, but then also being able to seek it. Adaptability, well, When talking about adaptability, it's the, it's the ability to seek new answers that you don't already have. You know, that encapsulates, that encapsulates being able to move and, and change as, as, necess necessary, <laughs> as necessity dictates, excuse me. Um, and then finally, if, if, if you end up having a breakdown and, and need to recover, a lot of times it's our ability, again, to reach out and see connections to the, the world beyond us that, that will give us the strength to do that. Um, we also need to have the ability to seek answers within ourselves and knowing that we have those abilities to, to learn will, will give that strength to recover. Does that make sense? It does. And there's, and there's two kind of key words that, that you touched upon, but I want to kind of highlight. 
through the learning process, uh, independence. You talked about the kids who get that aha, oh my God, I can read. That means there's a whole new set of worlds that just open up for me. So there's a sense of independence for them, which is wonderful. And then you also mentioned kind of connection. When you, when you kind of hit the wall and, you're, and you quote unquote fail, you fall forward and you can use your connections to figure out how you can succeed the next time you hit that same wall. Absolutely. So, you know, it's, I can see how, and what I, one, another thing I love about your book is how you kind of connect all these things together. So they're not independent things, interdependent things. Absolutely. So learning, um, how, how do you operationalize this? You gave an example of teaching a child to read, which is a great way to operationalize learning. But how do you operationalize learning, like the, the awe, the curiosity, so it's like a lifelong venture for them. It's not just, oh, I want to learn this one thing and then I'm done. It's the way that we take it, Michael. You know, we as parents model everything for our children. And if we say, oh, well, if you take your kids to a museum because you know that's what you're supposed to do. Like, we're going to be cultured and we're, we're going to go to this museum, kids. We're in Philadelphia. Let's go learn about the Liberty Bell. And uh, you sit there idly by taking care of your email. Um, and you say, well, go read about that. <laughs> you're not going to get a lot of results out of your kids from that. You, you yourself need to be thrilled at new information and, and how it opens doors for your mind. And then your children will take your, take your step. The kids like to do what their parents do. We joke about this all the time. It's why they make toy lawnmowers. No one likes mowing the lawn, but if dad's mowing the lawn, you know, little Johnny wants to mow the lawn too, which just sounds crazy, but it's true. And um, we as parents, you know, especially if a long day and we're fatigued, it's very tempting to say, go practice your piano. I'm gonna go relax and, and uh, you know, watch a show or whatever. And, um, and when we do that, we, we disempower the child. We make practicing piano look like a less desirable activity rather than this. And so it takes a lot of work on our part. And there's something, and, and maybe that should be a big disclaimer on a book, it takes a lot of work on our part in order to do all of this. But we need to make sure that we're modeling the level of learning that we want our children to learn. So if we suggest that our child uh, take up Chinese, we need to go take up Chinese. And, uh, and if we suggest that they read a book, we need to make sure that we read a book. And part of that is... Um, making sure that we walk the walk and do what we say. Uh, another part of that is making sure that they see. I joke with this a lot of times with uh, parents of young children is that, you know, if you put your kids to bed and then go read a book every night, that's wonderful, but your, your kids in that scenario never see you reading. And um, so we need to make sure that they both see us and hear us talk about it. And, you know, I, I like to recap uh, books that I'm reading with my kids. And I know they're not particularly interesting to my children. That's why I'm reading them instead of them. But, but, but sharing the book that I'm reading um, points out that this is something that we do, that it's of interest to me, that I'm continuing to, to expand my horizons uh, just as they're continuing to expand their horizons. So that's important um, as well. It also sounds like you require a lot of presence. I mean, you, you can't be watching television, you can't be on your iPhone playing games or on your emails. You actually have to be present with your children. Yeah, no one ever said, no one said it was easy. You need to be engaged, right? Yeah. And let's not also, um, let's not diminish the importance of having just an environment that's helpful for learning. That includes having the resources that are there for them, you know, age-appropriate, great literature, mm -hmm. and then also the, the, the quiet that's necessary for, for un, you know, understanding what you're reading. And then there are the stimulating things that, like going out and going to field trips and, and facilitating those kinds of things as well. But then the last really important ingredient beyond having the environment and beyond being your, the mentor that models is to be constantly advocating for it. Be, be outspoken about the joy and the importance of learning. And then you just need to find uh, the moments here and there and realize that every 
every moment is an opportunity for a lesson because everything that comes up, whether it's, as we were talking about a minute ago, applying for a Chinese visa or whether it's uh, going through traffic or whether it's um, uh, seeing something on the news, we understand what's going on around us, hopefully most of the time, and our children don't. They're complicated issues. Um, and it's very easy to just say, oh, well, my kid's sick, so I'm not going to explain that. Um, or you won't be interested in that. You won't be interested in that. But everything can be explained at a six-year-old level, and then you know we'll explain it again at the 12-year-old level, and we'll explain it again at the 18-year-old level as appropriate uh, you know, when the time comes. Um, but every moment is an opportunity to learn, and we should go down those rabbit holes. And when they ask a question, like that's, that's precious, because kids are curious, and they're interested, and they want to know things. Um, and the more we can tie them back to this theme of the learning and the service integrity is like, we're, you know, we're gonna talk, my child's gonna ask a question about such and such, and we're gonna answer that question, and then we're gonna tie it back to how that applies to learning, integrity, and service. And, um, but you just kind of need to be constantly on your guard, which goes back to what you were saying about being present. And it's, it takes energy, um, but there is, there's nothing more important that we can do. You know, I think it's also important to highlight too that learning, what I hear you saying, learning is not just book learning or going to a, a, a theater or going to a, a, um, any kind of cultural event. Uh, any day-to-day interaction on this, uh, creates a space for learning to take place. And you have a great example in your book, uh, the broken plate example. Would you share that? Uh, yeah, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, we, uh, I'm sure that someday my child won't be scarred that we shared this in a, in a book. We hope so. We hope not. Uh, we were at a, uh, we were at a hotel, we were on, uh, on vacation, and, um, there was a buffet breakfast that we were having, and, uh, my child, I think he was probably six or seven at the time, uh, broke his plate full of food and made a, a loud noise and a mess, uh, throughout the, uh, restaurant. And you know everybody looks up when there's a loud noise, and then they see that everything's fine, and they they go back about their business. Um, and somebody came and helped clean it up and and whatnot. And we we talked about it, and you know there's so many different pieces of what's going on here. You know, one way of viewing this was you know he uh, damaged and broke something and created a mess that someone needed to clean up. So one one thing is is to uh, reprimand the child for for making a mess and and whatnot. Um, another is to um, is to look at his reaction because he's reacting negatively to the uh, what's going on that he's he's feeling negative attention from other people and so talking about the emotions that are involved in there and um, and uh, what it turned out what was happening of course he was trying to use the buffet which is designed for adults and he couldn't reach and he was trying to balance a plate where he probably shouldn't have been trying to balance a plate and serve himself and it wasn't working out and and, and this is what happened and. Um, so we started with that. We started with the most functional stuff. The, um, and so we went back and we went back to the buffet and we figured out how can a child this height um, with this level of manual dexterity uh, serve himself at a buffet. And that involved setting the plate here and going over here. And there's a lot of extra steps and, and, and a little bit of extra work that it would take someone uh, who was taller and had larger hands. Uh, but it worked and he was able to serve himself a new fresh meal um, and whatnot. Uh, and I, I guess I should interject somewhere in there, there was an apology to the employees that ended up cleaning up the mess that he created. And an offer to help. Yeah. And an offer to help. Um, and then we went down and and, uh, and sat down and ate the meal, but you could tell that he was still kind of um, uh, affected by the, the scene that he had created. He, he was embarrassed. Uh, and embarrassment's, you know, kind of a, a, an insidious emotion because uh, when we're embarrassed, we're afraid to do the things we sometimes want to do and be the way that we want to be uh, because we're afraid of how people are will view us or judge us or whatever. Um 
and obviously that serves a purpose in certain situations, but, you know, he didn't do anything, you know, wrong on that uh, and, and shouldn't feel as such. And so we, we had the fun experiment of asking him to close his eyes and, and describe all of the people in the, in the restaurant, uh, which he, he couldn't do. Um, he couldn't describe one. He couldn't describe one. Um, and, um, and somewhere in there, pausing and giving him time to think it through, he eventually realized that if no one else in the restaurant, if he, couldn't re- if he didn't remember anyone else in the restaurant, it was very likely that no one else in the restaurant remembered him. Um, and the reality that, that we're all to a very large degree very uh, internally focused. Uh, and he was not the talk of everybody's breakfast table. And he was not, no one is going to go on through the rest of their day talking about this kid uh, who we've succeeded in not naming yet. So I'm, I'm really happy for that in his future. <laughs> um, uh, you know, how this child uh, had, had ruined their breakfast and whatnot. Because that just wasn't true. But that was the story that he was telling in his head. And so we kind of helped him break out of that narrative and into the narrative of, you know, I made a mistake, I fixed it, I cleaned up, I moved on, and we're fine here. Uh, and, and, and he brightened up a lot from there. And that was, uh, so see, there's different levels that we can approach, but it's a broken plate. And we could, you know, uh, we could bark and we could refill the plate, or we could sit down and figure out how we can prevent this from happening in the future, both the, the mechanical, the physical component, as well as the, uh, as kind of the emotional breakdown that followed. And this part didn't make it into the book. But it's one of my favorite parts of this story. At the end, as we were leaving, a woman at a nearby table said, you're a teacher, aren't you? She said, I can just hear it in your voice. It's the way you talk to your kids. And I want to encourage, I want to encourage everyone to, to get that kind of compliment for someone because we find that that teacher-student, or teacher-child relationship with, with your own personal child lends to so many great things for connectedness and independence and the kind of everlasting but independent relationship you're looking for with your kids. So that's learning. That's one of the three pillars. <clears throat> the second pillar is service, looking beyond yourself. Uh, talk about the importance of service. And I know you guys break that up in four different areas of possible ways of, of a child can serve others. Sure. Um, well, you mentioned a, a minute ago the uh, independence and connectedness and how that's a very important part of developing this framework um, and finding, and I guess if I can go just off topic ever so slightly, uh, talking about the importance of that independence and connectedness, I think part of the problem that parents have now is a, a uh, misunderstanding, a belief that independence comes at the expense of connectedness and vice versa. And, uh, and it's just simply not true. We just want to say loud. Uh, loudly and clearly that uh, that there is no compromise that needs to be struck. The most uh, success, successful amongst us are both independent but also very well connected to the people around them in appropriate ways. Um, and that we want to raise our children. When your child is hiding behind you because they can't say hi to a stranger, um, which is a clear demonstration of a, of a young child lacking independence um, and interacting with the world in an age-appropriate way, that doesn't mean they're more connected to you. It means that they lack independence. And, um, and then you know, reciprocally, a, a child who doesn't uh, communicate with his parents, and uh, there's kind of the archetypal like teenager hiding in his room and, and playing with his phone, um, that child who lacks uh, connectedness is not more independent than another child, rather. That these are two skills they need to be developed uh, in parallel, uh, and they're very important. So w- with that said, um, there are connections between learning and both independence and connectedness and service, but to a large degree, um, to a larger degree, learning contributes uh, predominantly to development of independence, and service develops, uh, contributes predominantly to a feeling of connectedness. We like to say that, that learning will help you lead a functional life. You know, you, you have the skills and the whereabouts to gather more skills as you need. 
and then service leads to the fulfillment of that life. You know, leads to a, a much more profound joy. We we talk sometimes about the um, there's a anecdote or a, a, a quip in the book at any rate um, about the college professor with a half dozen doctoral degrees and whatnot who uh, I'm sorry not the college professor forgive me the uh, grad student with a half dozen doctoral uh, the degrees the endless grad student the endless grad student <laughs> and you know and most of us know one if uh, if you're not uh, closely related to one uh, who doesn't seem to ever get around to sharing enough that knowledge with anyone else and doesn't seem to give that information back and uh, and that the most useful thing they'll ever do is say something clever at a dinner party. And, uh, and that's the person who has all of this learning and they've learned all of this wonderful information, uh, but they've, they've missed this important step of sharing uh, that information. And so uh, they're not a lot of use to anyone. That sounds <laughs> terrible to say, but it's true. Um, and so they, they lack the connections that, uh, that we build by being for lack of a better term, useful to other people and, uh, and serving people in all the different ways. And so uh, we build a lot of connections with other people by serving them and then, of course, allowing them to serve us as well in reciprocal relationships. Um, and as you said, we break down in the book, you know, the gifts and, and, and advocating for just, justice and, and uh, labor and... Um, teaching. And teaching. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it had to be something, and uh, and that uh, and how you know how those can kind of be uh, taught and exemplified, you know, as at a young child level, as at a teenager level, and then obviously how those blossom uh, with those uh, those seeds into some of the things that we can do as adults, because uh, advocating over justice looks like. Uh, you know, might look like a 12-year-old standing up uh, for her friend in, in class, uh, but then it might uh, look like uh, leading a protest march in, um, you know, as an adult. And uh, then obviously these things scale. Well, I think that's where a lot of us parents get stuck, is how am I going to teach my toddler to be of service when I constantly feel I must be in service to, to him or to her? They need a lot. But the sooner we can plant those seeds that Chris talked about, where you can be helpful, you know, oh my goodness, it's a world of change for them. And suddenly they, they get a lot more pleasure out of that than, than they do out of needing things. We all, we all do. Um, there's a hero effect that happens, and, and this is where service ties into resilience. When you feel that you can help someone, then you have, you have something, you know, you have a strength within you. And when somebody needs you, you might find that you're able to to go far beyond what you thought you could do. You know, that's the adaptability part of, uh, of resilience is you may prove that you can, well, coming again from a parent of young children, you might rock a baby for hours and hours long before you ever thought you could do a bicep curl at the gym because that baby needs you. Um, and then, of course, the, the uh, recovery, well, again, this, this hero effect, it, it, if you're feeling absolutely down on your luck, you know, just at, at rock bottom, I know we've all been there in, in our own way. When someone needs you and you are able to give them something, serve them in some way, it's, it's magical, it pulls you out. And that's why we were talking about that service predominantly feeds into connectedness, but it also feeds into independence as well, is that there, there's a service, and whether we're talking about a, um, a, a six-year-old clearing the table for the first time, 
Um, so important that, that kids are involved in those family chores. But all of a sudden we're, we're part of a community here and we're serving uh, our family unit as opposed to simply being served all the time, which has its own uh, uh, negative connotations uh, when we uh, behave as a servant as opposed to providing service. And we discuss this a little bit in the book, just that there's a, a very subtle dis di uh, difference between, uh, and it's largely in perception, when a uh, parent uh, does something for a child, if it is received in the spirit of service, then it's a, a wonderful uh, relationship building moment for all of them. And when instead the child, due to lack of appreciation, mm. uh, treats that parent as a servant, which happens all too often, um, then there, the opportunity for connectedness doesn't exist. And, uh, and we are building a relationship then. And, and frankly, we can uh, set the, uh, create the foundation of a degree of resentment mm -hmm. on the part. And so you even end up in the situation where the, the parent who does everything for the child ends up presenting the child they do everything for, uh, which, is, you know, which is about as bad as it gets. So those are the first two pillars, learning and service. There's a third pillar, integrity. <clears throat> Talk a little bit about the third pillar. Integrity is, you know, it's, it's foundational. We refer to it in the book as the central pillar. Um, that if you uh, lack integrity, you're, uh, for lack of a better term, just a bad person. Um, if you... <laughs> you fail, yeah. <laughs> Epic yeah. fail. Uh, if you lack learning and service uh, and, and or service, but you have integrity, you're at least a good person. You just don't have a life that works very well. You don't have a life um, that, uh, that is as fulfilling as it should be. Um, but... But you, but you aren't a bad person. So uh, most of us have friends who lack learning or lack service or both, uh, but most of us don't have friends who lack integrity um, because that's so foundational. It also, so we think about it a lot in those terms, the, uh, the, how it uh, feeds into the connectedness because if you, uh, and we break down in the book how integrity has to do with your maintaining integrity with yourself, with others, and with authority figures. And if you uh, don't have integrity with yourself, you don't get anything done. And this is kind of a subtlety. Um, we just spent only a, a short time in the book on this, but the idea that most of the things that we uh, accomplish in life are not, are the, the have-tos that we have to do in life aren't really things we have to do, but rather they're simply things that we have promised ourselves we would do. Um, and whether that's something as simple as setting a, a, a dentist appointment for your kids, or whether it's going back to school, or whether it's applying for a promotion or a new job, most of those things that we feel that we have to do are things that we uh, promise ourselves that we'll do. Well, the person who is, uh, has a lot of integrity with themselves is the person who says, I will go back to school or I will apply for that promotion or I will take on this new project and, and follows through and does those things. And lacking that, lacking that, um, that simple ability to do what you say you're going to do, um, what's the old line, uh, do what you say and say what you do, um, uh, lacking that, we don't accomplish those things. So that, that, that eats away our, our ability to be independent. And then uh, integrity with others is, you know, when you say you're going to be at your you know, friend's house at 6 a.m. with your pickup truck, you, you should be at your friend's house at 6 a.m. with a pickup truck. And um, when you say um, uh, you're going to meet someone for coffee, you should meet someone for coffee. And, you know, and some of these are big deals and some of these are small deals, but, uh, but they all eat away at our integrity if we fail to, uh, fail to do them, uh, fulfill them. And that's going to uh, destroy our relationships uh, faster than anything else we could ever possibly do. And then uh, it, uh, just for completeness, we discussed the uh, integrity with authority figures and failing to, uh, to, to pay your mortgage on time and failing to, uh, uh, to obey uh, this and that law will, uh, will end, up, uh, end up badly as well. 
Michael, you asked how we apply these things in, in real life. And I think one, one thing to go over here is that it's, it's because it's so central, because it's so important to maintain integrity. And by the way, we think of integrity not as something that you can gain, like learning or something that you can practice, at, like service, but something that you're born with. And, and we want to teach our children right from the very start that this is, this is something precious. You know, I have it in my mind, I this like glowing orb of, of perfection, right? And you don't want to mar it. It's, you only get one. And every scar that you put on there it is there forever. And so you want to keep that intact. Okay, that's how we view integrity. And because of that, as parents, we want to mind every little lapse, catch it before it happens. Uh, there's a little story in here about uh, our children doing, it was called the Healthy Habits Quest. <laughs> we are trying to get them to brush their teeth more often. Uh, <laughs> and so they were to keep track on this, this chart. Uh, and actually, they, they came up with their own things. We, we had our, some that we wanted, and then they got to mark off some of their own. So one of our children wanted to draw more. He said, I think it's a healthy habit that I, that I draw, and so every day I want to do that. And, and of course, they, as they see on the chart, whether or not they had marked it off, it's, it's effective. And, and they want to keep it up because it's like points, right? Yeah. Um, they, they took a lot of ownership of this. This is great. Well... At the end of one day, we were going over. We saw, oh, Seth, I see that you didn't um, you didn't mark off drawing on this one, and and he said, oh well, let me think about it. Oh, I I did this. Yeah, okay. I I scribbled a little bit over here, and like, well, that counts, right? And. And of course, we could see. <laughs> Kids are never as good at lying at their parents as they think they are. <laughs> we could see that, that this didn't count, you know, but, but our, our poor child was suffering here because he so, who, he so much wanted to maintain the integrity of this, this quest and didn't realize that, that being honest about whether he had completed it was more important than having completed it, right? And so through a, a lot of conversation and and. Guiding questions. Guiding questions, yeah, as, as a teacher would. We helped him discover that for himself. It would have been much less effective if, if we had told him, no, you didn't. <laughs> the end, you know. But he had to discover for himself what that integrity was like. So minding the lapse, uh, that's, that's one way to put this into effect. You know, um, this is so important as something that, that children need to grow up into adulthood with. Because as a coach and as a former therapist, you, you find a lot of people who their no's and yeses are very weak. They don't know how to say no to something they really don't want to say no to, so they say yes. So there's a lack of kind of internal integrity to it. They might still fall through, but it's not really a strong yes, and their yeses might not be the real full yes. You know, there's all that stuff that's going on. And it sounds to me like with integrity and independence and connection really developed in, in these kids, that as adults they will be, they'll have real yeses when they really mean yes and they'll fall through with f- fullness of their whole, whole person and they'll be able to have clear boundaries and say no if they really mean no which i think is so important agree i think it's a really good point yeah. so one of my favorite things is at the end of your book and i'm going to ask holly to read it for us page 121 it's so funny michael you have me open the page we've been saying this every day Three times a day. For, for uh, the last year. So I, I don't need the page. Cool. <laughs> you want me to recite the credo? Well, for, why don't you tell us what it is and why it's important to you guys, why you guys do it three times a day, why others should consider it, and then please do read it. Absolutely. So our family credo is uh, what we're alluding to. And this is something we developed a number of years ago. Um, 
kind of in the idea of a, a mantra of kind of setting forth for within our family, our family values, uh, what we want to draw out because we, as we quip sometimes that if you don't um, teach your children your values, then they will either end up with no values or someone else will teach them their values. Uh, and so it's very important that we uh, not, uh, not vaguely and unintentionally, but very deliberately and purposefully um, um, teach our children our values. And we, design, we design something for them that makes sense for us and makes sense to them. And they're part of that process too as they're older. Well, that, yeah, getting into the process. And I, I think it's harder. Teaching our values for children is harder than I think we give it credit for because most of us uh, don't spend a lot of time thinking about what our values are. And values are simple. Like everybody likes honesty and like everybody likes uh, courtesy and everybody likes, you know, there are a lot of things we can all rattle off that, that we value, um, punctuality. Uh, but where values get uh, tricky is when they start running into conflict. And, um, and when do you, when does one take precedence over another? Uh, and that's where things get interesting. And, you know, we kind of postulate the idea that as when you have kids, you start encountering uh, situations that you hadn't before. And life gets a little more complicated as we get older. And we start running into more conflicts. Uh, and it can be confusing for children as you're trying to explain these values. And, and one day you say, well, it's really important that you be polite. And then the next day, well, do you remember the story, how it goes? Yeah, I think we were talking about the idea that... Uh, um, that when a, uh, at a uh, person's house, um, they offer you dinner, and it's polite to say that you like it. And the fact that you maybe didn't like the dinner is neither here nor there, because courtesy and politeness uh, and good manners are very, very important. That's right. And then when the next day, uh, we shouldn't say things that upset people within reason. And we have all these caveats that we apply to that, um, but, but we don't necessarily communicate those. If we aren't careful, we don't communicate those caveats to the child. And then the next day, the child says um, that they did their homework even though they didn't or clean their room or whatever it is. And um, it turns out they were lying. You find out later, you say, well, you lied to me. You didn't do your homework. And they said, well, I didn't want to upset you. So I didn't say anything that would upset you because last night that's what you told me. Um, and so we need to be very careful not to throw out our values here, there, and the other way. Or we need to make sure that we, we lay them out in a framework. We lay them out in a hierarchy. We explain the subtleties. We talk about when when maybe you should compliment someone's minestrone when it wasn't good minestrone, you know. And, um, and uh, not you do. And, uh, <laughs> uh, it was really good. It was really good minestrone. <laughs> and uh, we'll bring you some. And, um, and, and, and lay those out. So the credo is, uh, we, we sit down once a year and we revise the credo with the kids. And they're, they're, they didn't, initially we wrote it uh, ourselves. Um, and, uh, but now the kids, that they're getting older, they have some input, some opinions. And, uh, and it lets us, uh, and we say it before meals, um, to, um, to just kind of solidify within our family, this is what is important to us. This is what uh, we value as a family. Um, and it helps when we're, um, well, maybe uh, Holly wants to recite it, but it helps when, we, uh, when two children are squabbling or a child does something that's inappropriate. Um, it's very useful to say, remember that thing you said an hour ago? Like when you were reciting the credo before lunch? Like you just, that is what you did consistent with the values that we have agreed upon. And, um, and that they can start internalizing that and they can realize, anytime that they realize that they haven't done something consistent with their values, it's much more powerful than mom yelled at me because I did something she didn't like. like well, those. And guess what? It does the same thing for me too, right? We are, we are not immune to needing our values and a reminder of them. 
And so every day, r reminding myself of what my missions are is clarifying and, and uh, grounding. You know, it, it puts me on the right path. So, let me hear what it is. I can't say it alone. Right here, right now, I am grateful for the health of my body and spirit and the beauty that surrounds me. Every day I am grateful for the opportunity to create my destiny, which I greet with optimism, confidence, and joy. All my life I am grateful for the love of friends and family, whom I serve with generosity, patience, and kindness. For this moment, for this day, and for this life, I am truly grateful. Not sure which one of us messed that up. <laughs> I know who messed that up. <laughs> I think that's the part usually at breakfast where you look over to make sure that the kids are all saying it. <laughs> so maybe you don't have that word down so well. <laughs> that's awesome. Chris and Holly Santello, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having us. It was. Thank you.